Hello and welcome to a new retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial, hosted in association with the investment magazine, professional planner, and our media and event partner, the Financial Planning Association of Australia. My name is Alex Promos and I'm the head of institutional content and investment magazine. Along with my colleagues, Lawrence Parker-Brown and Matthew Smith, we spent the past five months curating content focused on the most pertinent issues in retirement for both institutional and retail fiduciaries. Since Paul Keating first steered the superannuation guarantee into law in 1992, Australia has been recognised for its accumulation or defined contribution system. However, when it comes to the meeting the needs of retirees, such as delivering advice, determining an appropriate investment strategy and navigating a dignified retirement, Australia has a lot to learn. This podcast series offers exclusive access to conversations with thought leaders in the retirement sector as they discuss ways to improve the system. I hope you enjoy the podcast series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Podcast Series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine. Today, I'm joined by Jason Brady, the President and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. He's responsible for the company's overall strategy and direction. He is also Portfolio Manager on multiple strategies. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this is a really uh, a fascinating time uh, for markets. I know uh, Thornburg and you have been talking for the last few months about sort of what you've been seeing in markets and, and some of the early frictions that you've started to see. Can you give our listeners a bit of a, a text on, on what you have been seeing? Sure. So I think um, one of the things that we've been talking about um, for a number of months is the increase in indebtedness uh, for corporations around the world. Uh, Clearly, the last decade plus since the global financial crisis, you've seen uh, global interest rates be quite low. So that's spurred a lot of borrowing. Um, All over the world, it's spurred borrowing by corporations. Um, Various uh, individuals or sort of personal balance sheets, I suppose, that weren't uh, struggling during the financial crisis um, are also pretty pretty highly levered. in, in some of the biggest markets, the U.S. being a, a clear one, uh, the personal balance sheets are actually pretty good, um, but both corporate and government balance sheets are pretty bad. Uh, by a lot of measures, global balance sheets uh, are more levered than at any time they've ever been, and that includes in recessions. So now as we go into a recession, it's a real question as to how resilient uh, those balance sheets will be. And I think what we've been talking about is not just, okay, what does that look like and how ugly does it get? But then, oh, well, fine, but what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. I guess one of the interesting parts, you know, when you think about, you know, particularly for a retirement um, standpoint, is the need for income. Uh, sure. And the historical approach was you can just invest in some fixed interest and maybe some dividend paying shares. But you know, fixed interest, obviously, with lower and lower interest rates, has made that challenge very difficult, and has seen a number of investors moving to to equities as as an ability to sort of generate income. Now we've seen some very large drawdowns um, on equity markets of late. So I guess how how should investors be really thinking about you know that decision to sort of solve for looking for income across two markets that haven't you know don't really have the same sort of ability to provide income like they used to. Sure. So um, income is increasingly desirable and therefore had been anyway, increasingly scarce. Uh, so yeah, exactly. As, as global central banks uh, cut rates uh, 
pretty much to zero and held them at very, very low levels uh, for the last decade plus, there's not only been a huge incentive uh, by corporations and some governments to raise their debt levels at cheap rates, but also, frankly, um, a lot of money moving towards those kinds of investments because the typical investor was struggling to find a place where they could get reliable income streams. So to give you a to give you a sense of the difference, um, two decades ago, you could uh, invest in very high quality government bonds and receive something between a three and four percent real yield, which is to say, uh, after inflation yield. And today that number is certainly negative. Now we'll see if we get deflation as a result of the recession that we're a global recession that we're we're entering now. But ultimately um, rates have gone from kind of the, the safe spot uh, with some real return uh, to today, not that. Um, it's not that they're not safe. I think governments will likely pay back, but but in fact the return is is zero or negative. So the move had been uh, first to riskier fixed income, and I think uh, the financial crisis uh, really kind of stood that on its head a little bit. Uh, people found that um, there was certainly risk in their fixed income, and also now to uh, to equities, uh, which is actually a really interesting place to get income over time, for the the biggest reason being that that income can grow. In other words, uh, as earnings is as corporations' earnings grow and their dividends payouts stay the same, their the income stream to the investor can grow. The flip side, of course, is that um, investing in equities and investing in government bonds are a very different place on both sort of volatility spectrum and the risk spectrum generally. Mm-hmm. So um, that search for income had had become very difficult with a lot of a lot of stretched investors. I think the one other piece of that, which maybe we can get to a little bit, is is just that the the interest rate component, the, the stable government bond part of people's portfolios, because it had stopped providing income, uh, was really there for insurance, uh, but that insurance was expensive, and so they increasingly had less and less. So where are we now? Um, here's the good news: uh, prices are a lot lower, so the menu of income-producing securities is a lot bigger and, and more interesting. So uh, that's true in equities, certainly, but it's absolutely true in credit. So I think that's very useful. Um, obviously, investors have to take stock of where they sit today from a portfolio value perspective. But there is a lot of opportunity, burgeoning opportunity to, to put on some really interesting income-producing positions. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's go back to to some of the probably the, the key areas where a lot of investors have have looked at, and that is REITs, energy, and and financials as a typical place to generate income. I guess some of these areas have probably been the most affected of late, given the high leverage that sits behind them. You know, are these places still you know offering the same sort of value, or do do investors need to sort of wait? to sort of see how this this current market uh, crisis sort of unfolds and work out who does have the best balance sheets out there? Sure. So I think I think the the balance sheet question you're asking is is a very important one. And you know I I grew up in this business as a fixed income investor and and you know for the last 13 years have I've been a co-PM on a, a multi-asset strategy. 
And so I've um, I've become very familiar with looking at at income statements as well as balance sheets. But I think you know, a lot of equity investors um, forget to look at the balance sheet until times like this. So you're absolutely right. Those three sectors, REITs, energy, and financials, um, tend to have significant amounts of leverage. Uh, REITs and financials, frankly, as part of the business model. Um, energy, uh, mostly because it's very capital intensive. So taking the first, two, taking REITs and financials, um, I think REITs have been something that people feel comfortable with because they feel as though it's tangible, um, but the leverage is is difficult. And I think valuations got fairly high, largely because they tend to be correlated pretty closely with moves in global interest rates. So, you know, as financing is cheaper and the REIT balance sheet um, has uh, less burden from, from interest rates, uh, that tends that that value has tended to accrue to the equities, uh, but ultimately that's led to some some fairly um, aggressive property investments in particular. Financials, uh, in particular, global banks are a little bit different story today. Um, actually, my belief is that uh, particularly in money center banks, um, think folks like J.P. Morgan as an example, um, we need to remember that we're not fighting the last war. So. Every recession is different. Every downturn is different. Um, going into the financial crisis in kind of 06, 07, 08, uh, banks were extraordinarily levered. And today, the regulatory burden has been really high. So banks are actually fairly um, fairly good in the context of their balance sheet. A lot of capital on the balance sheet, a lot of um, different policies uh, at the regulatory level, but certainly also uh, moving down towards the banks. Uh, energy, which is the last sector you mentioned, uh, is actually all over the map. So one of the biggest features of the last commodity blow up in kind of 14, 15, and 16, uh, both in emerging markets and developed markets, was a huge decline in commodities and the corresponding stress in a lot of balance sheets of energy companies. So what happened? Uh, well, if you had a, a terrible balance sheet, which was true for a lot of um, for a lot of folks, uh, particularly in the United States around shale production, uh, you either went bankrupt or you hobbled around until today, and now you're probably going to go bankrupt again. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, there's chapter 11 here in the United States. Um, we're going to see a lot of chapter 22s and 33s, uh, which is to say the second, third round of, of bankruptcy for some of these companies. On the flip side, there are some uh, global integrated oil companies that actually I believe will be the winners coming out out of this, and and they've been they've been uh, their, their stock prices certainly have been decimated. Um, companies like Shell, uh, with a very very strong balance sheet, um, you know Shell bonds today are trading not too different, frankly, than than global sovereigns, and that's for pretty good reason. So the stocks have been have been decimated, but I think you can pick some winners here. That said, and and Shell has has not cut its dividends since I believe the 40s. So they've been through a number of different things. Um, that said, look, it's it's still equity investment. And so you're in for a, for a bumpy ride. I just think, um, you know, REITs, REITs may be not so interesting, but the other two, uh, energy and financials, uh, you can pick your spots and certainly uh, remember that it's it's not the last war. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you think about the, the need for the need for income and, and investors looking across both equity and, and fixed income. Let's let's start off with I guess the 
the key area that a lot of people have have sort of seen as as being a given and that and that is the uncorrelated impact hopefully between different income streams and in particularly you know fixed interest being the diversifier if we look at the markets today um, and particularly around credit and then equities we just don't see that that sort of ability to to diversify or reduce the risk um, in the portfolio so for for retirement you know, solutions and investment opportunities that you know, that people are looking at. I guess how do we communicate to these people about managing, you know, the correlation impact? Given that you know things that we thought to be true um, haven't performed in the same way. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's the biggest problem for um, the investment industry, frankly, for the next for the foreseeable future, uh, which is. Many of us, uh, our entire, almost all of us, our entire investing lives uh, has seen basically global rates go lower um, with risk asset prices going higher. So, you know, over long periods of time, the prices of, of high quality fixed income and the prices of risky assets have both been moving higher, right? Um it's really in times of stress and drawdown, which is obviously critical in the context of retirement. Uh, in times of stress, fixed income, high quality fixed income has, has given you a cushion. So when, when markets fall out of bed, uh, rates go uh, notably lower, high quality bonds go higher um, as equities are going lower. And then in a recovery, rates, um, rates are moving up, which means high quality bond prices are moving down. Um, as equities recover or risky assets of, of many types. So that negative correlation in times of stress has been a really wonderful boon to, to any asset allocator, whether it's a, a, a large institutional asset allocator or, or you know, some, uh, an, an individual. And that's basically been taken away. And, and it's been taken away for a few reasons. Um, but the biggest one really is that the front end and, and sort of broadly global interest rates have become absolutely... Uh, more than just kind of a, a monetary policy tool or a cyclical tool, they've almost become kind of a secular funding tool. Um, and you know, we kept rates uh, over the last decade plus fairly low globally uh, to try to forestall any kind of recession. And it's really, um, it's really meant that we don't have a lot now, other than very unconventional, uh, unconventional uh, policies none of which are likely to make global rates uh, go much below zero. Um, experiments with below zero rates have been spotty at best. And certainly there's a, there's a reversal rate whereby if you go any lower, it's, it's not really that it doesn't have additional value. In fact, it seems to have the opposite. So we sit here in a place where, um, you know, rates, rates couldn't really go much lower globally and, and frankly haven't. Uh, while equities are plummeting and, and risky assets generally are plummeting. So what do you do? Um, well, again, the good news right now is that there is a lot to do outside of um, outside of, of high quality fixed income. Actually, I think in particular uh, credit uh, globally is is gotten very, very interesting. But it's it's really a, a challenge to ride out volatility. Uh, so investors, Need to be very much more conscious of and and focused on uh, the their appetite for volatility uh, because the the toolkit that we've used for three to four decades is is not there anymore. 
It's interesting that you mentioned to write out volatility. I guess that's a really interesting challenge when you think for for you know, both institutional investors and the retail style fiduciaries as well, as they you know need to manage a drawdown process for a lot of their clients um, with the same sort of volatility. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, the you know obviously the biggest challenge um, for um, for any retirement portfolio is not just long-term returns, but obviously the sequencing of those returns or the the timing of of potential negative returns. So um, again, the 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 biggest challenge, the biggest moment uh, is is just obviously as 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 everyone's aware is kind of just as um, someone is, is, is making a transition uh, to, de- to significant decumulation. Um, again, the, the big benefit here, and I think something that actually uh, folks should think about from a strategy perspective is, is the place of credit in your portfolio. So the bad news uh, for, for markets, uh, as I was saying, kind of six months ago is, you know, there's there's not a lot of income out there, but the interesting thing is, global credit markets have really become much more robust and broad. Uh, there's much more. There are many different kinds of risks to take. Uh, some of them terrible, uh, but the benefit today is prices have have moved dramatically. So most folks. So so taking a step back. Managing a, a, a fairly large multi-asset income portfolio, global multi-asset income portfolio. Uh, what we have done in times like this, and it seems very counterintuitive, is is actually generally found more opportunities in the downturn in credit than in equities. And the reason is that credit investors are generally um, very volatility averse, and in fact, when when folks are promised a you know six percent yield on something, they think that's going to be their return forever, and when they get negative fifteen percent, suddenly they don't want it anymore. Um, so the prices of credit are extremely volatile relative to the outcomes, and what you also see is coming out of of real dislocations in the market, is credit tends to be one of the best performers coming sort of through and into a recover through a, a challenge and into a recovery. Again, because there's so much liquidity pressure and selling pressure because uh, folks that were maybe not ready to see uh, any kind of downtrade in, in their position um, sell out and, and there needs to be new investors that come in. You know, when, you, when you buy an equity and it goes down 20% or 30%, you're not happy, but you know that it can happen. Folks, when they buy bonds, they, they, they kind of don't think that can happen. So today, the toolkit uh, for managing the drawdown that has occurred is actually really exciting. And uh, when we in our multi-asset income portfolio and in, in various other uh, uh, frictions and dislocations have moved into credit, it's been very valuable both from an income perspective, certainly, but actually notably from a total return perspective uh, over the next several years. So Look, every every downturn is different, um, and what we're seeing today is not what we were seeing 12 years ago, uh, and the reasons are different. But there's a lot to do here, and uh, a lot of opportunity in the marketplace, even though there's been a significant uh, challenge and drawdown on a lot of portfolios. Let's let's go back to to the point in terms of the challenging situation where you know you need to constantly you know, revalue or, or determine you know which 
which asset class to invest in? Is it fixed interest or is it is it equities? And and being flexible in terms of how you how you position the portfolio. One of the challenges mm-hmm. that I hear constantly in the institutional space is the struggle around you know going through investment committees, getting the governance approval. Really, a lack of flexibility. You know, what's your thoughts there? Look, I've spent a lot of time speaking to a lot of institutions, and um, I think the folks that recognize that friction, um, you know, it's it's sort of like the first step in solving the problem is recognizing you have one. So the folks that recognize they have that friction um, and are out in front communicating uh, and setting up kind of contingency plans are, are the folks that I think are able to act more nimbly. Uh, it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge in the context of, you know, okay, we have an investment committee meeting four or five, six times a year. And, you know, what do we see just now in the marketplace? We saw the fastest down trade in risk assets ever. And so, you know, I, look, I had a, I had a, uh, a Thornburg board meeting, uh, board of directors meeting um, two and a half weeks ago. And I was talking to my chairman um, on Friday and I, he kind of didn't believe it. Like he didn't believe that it had only been two weeks. Uh, so look, a lot can change. And the question is, how do you front load your flexibility? Um, and I think, you know, doing your diligence on a strategy ahead of time uh, and thinking about how you're going to execute ahead of time uh, is is something I've seen a lot of institutions be very successful with and, and certainly the subject of a lot of our conversations. But, but it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to do that. Uh, it feels like you have contingency plans for things that, you know, don't happen and and feels like it was wasted effort and then you have what happened over the last month or so and and suddenly uh, you're you're way ahead of the game so that's a problem uh, for sure and and what we've been doing uh, is working with institutions to try to figure out how we can front load diligence front load thought processes be transparent so that when the time comes the professionals that are dealing with with the investment committee meeting can have have already kind of gotten their answer. Let, let's look at you know the 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 typical you know institutional fund in Australia that still has very much solid solid teams. You know they have a debt team and an equity team, but really what sure. I'm hearing from you is that you, know, you need to be almost taking this total portfolio approach. Um, but then when that's what you have that situation, how do you then try to balance up, weigh up, you know the the relative trades that, that should be, you know, should be you know, thought of. Um, what does that look like at Thornburg? Sure. So I mean, that's, that's really the key to our sustainable competitive advantages is we, um, we work very hard to make sure uh, the company as a whole, but certainly the investment team is, is not siloed. Uh, it's, it's hard. People naturally want to do that. They want to be experts in something. And and that's that's fair. It's it's very hard to get an analyst um, to say I don't know, right? <laughs> if you say I don't know in a lot of investment shops, you're you're kind of out of a job in a hurry. And yet, when we look at situations as we're seeing today, um, we've already talked about how you know the the correlation between debt and equities is different. We've already talked about how different. Um, Asset classes can play, you know, a multitude of roles in a portfolio. We've already talked about kind of how do you how do you think about how this fits together. And so, the the key is to 
put that into practice from an investment team structure perspective. And that's, that's really fun, but it's also really hard. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm the third CEO in Thornburg's 38 year history. And I, I have handed a baton, you know, handed it something for, for which I am the steward, uh, but we've been doing it that way from the beginning. So we didn't have to redesign everything. Uh, it ultimately means that the conversation that we were just having saying, Hey, you know what, when, when markets really struggle, when we find a lot of opportunity and credit, um, we're able to take advantage of that in a sort of multi-asset portfolio because that's sort of natural to the way we think. And when I speak with institutions and actually some institutional consultants, the total portfolio approach that you mentioned is, is seems to be gaining some significant traction. It's, it's not that people say, oh, you know, we're, we're going to throw away any kind of expertise in, in fixed income or equity or what have you. There's still certainly a lot of uh, experts with, with sort of an asset class or sub-asset class specialty. But really looking at what is the point of the investment in the context of the outcome, as opposed to let's, let's assume an outcome, particularly a correlation, say, between debt and equity. Let's assume an outcome, uh, and then we'll just invest assuming that outcome is, is effective. Uh, I think that folks have been relatively disappointed in the way that the component parts have fit together, and they're looking for ways uh, to, to go beyond that, to, to, take, to have a sort of broader perspective on what various asset classes and sub-asset classes can do within their portfolio. So it's I for me, that is the that is the only way forward. If if you expect, you know, for example, high quality fixed income to do the same thing when it was uh, you know, three or four percent real yield um uh, 20 years ago and and you know your your data set includes that and now it's you know negative one, uh, it's it's gonna look different. It's gonna have a different place. And the same thing is true of Explosion in credit markets. The same thing is true, and when when equities um, are trading down uh, in price because rates were going up, that happened in 2018. Um, you know, you're seeing different moves because the world's a different spot, and it's 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 not working for a lot of folks to to kind of say, oh well, you know, my my back test of 30 years says this. Well, the last 30 years have had one kind of environment, which is generally lower rates, and you know, even huge asset classes have been birthed over the last 30, 40 years. So we don't really even know what it looks like when that's not the case. And it, it just takes a lot of forward thinking uh, and a lot of I don't knows uh, to really to really be able to navigate this market. I, I'm I'm forever drawn back to the the Socrates um, conversation in the Apology. Uh, not to get too philosophical here, but um, the the point of that story was that. Socrates determined that he that he was the wisest person, um, which you know, with a little bit of hubris, certainly, uh, he was the wisest person because he knew, he was the only one who knew he didn't know anything. And you know, if if nothing else, the markets over the last uh, month or few months um, have have taught a lot of us that. How much how much of the you know, the determination of a benchmark you know has really sort of influenced maybe. The thinking historically in terms of where asset owners were, were allocating, and then how do you then sort of reframe their thinking going forward in terms of you know what's a an, a target or an ideal benchmark they should be running at? Sure. So benchmark discussions are are some of the most important and interesting discussions out there. 
um, because everyone has to measure performance. And that's just the fact of the, of the life that we lead as investment professionals. But what is um, where I think the benchmark conversation gets sideways is when folks measure everything relative to that to include uh, volatility and also assume, again, either correlations or volatility is going to be fixed. So at the end of the day, the most successful conversations I've had with institutions are one where the institution understands what their actual goals are. Uh, it is no one's goal to beat the, you know, the ACWI every year. Now, if I could beat the ACWI every year, I'm sure I'd be a very successful investment professional. But the end client is not saying, hey, you know what, I want to beat the ACWI. Um, you know, today, if, if the end client is down, you know, 20 odd percent, they're killing the ACWI, but they're not really meeting their target, right? So I think the discussion has to be around what is the goal and how is the investment manager well-suited to help the client achieve that goal. So again, for us, it's, it's a, a return function for sure. It's a risk-adjusted return function, but it's also not a, okay, here's the sub-asset class or the, the individual small geography uh, that can, can you know, work in this very specific way. It's, okay, since we have some more perspective here, since we have uh, a view across asset classes and geographies, um, let's make sure when the universe changes, when opportunity, the location of opportunity changes, and it has changed a lot, uh, that we have the capability to, to get the client the best risk-adjusted returns that we can in the context of the opportunity set when it changes. So yeah, benchmarks are important. And you know, uh, inflation uh, hasn't been around, but you know, certainly there's, there's a concern around purchasing power. There's a concern about you know, the, the challenges of, of longer-term liabilities, and there's a concern around the pathway. And all of those are, are very, very important conversations and may or may not include any kind of sort of broad-based, asset class-based benchmark. So as we think about a return stream and, and we're starting to see more and more unconventional style policies coming through from, from governments all around the world, I guess we've talked a lot about income. You know, what's the opportunity you know, for capital gains to, to also be effectively you know, a quasi style of income? And, and so you know, communicating to investors that you know, return can come via income and potentially selling down in, in terms of capital growth as well. For sure. Um, you know, it's, it's a reasonable um, application of, of financial theory to say that the, where, where your gains come from, whether it's income or capital appreciation, is, is irrelevant. Um, in my experience, though, uh, income can provide a volatility cushion. Um, it also provides, frankly, a bit of a psychological cushion. So many folks uh, that are invested in real estate, uh, and I don't mean REITs, uh, I mean actual sort of physical buildings. What they'll say is, okay, I, the, the value of my real estate may have gone down, but because my income from that is, is, is relatively stable. Um, I'm not really worried about the mark to market. And in fact, mark to market on a lot of real estate portfolios is, is fairly uh, lax uh, because it's hard to determine the value of relatively liquid uh, pieces of property. So folks are in turn able to psychologically, frankly, stay invested 
Um, whereas in equities or, or kind of risky assets or even uh, quote unquote risk-free assets, if you like, um, seeing the price every day is a challenge. The, the benefit to income production is that it helps folks see that there's a tangible result of their investment so that they may say, okay, well, the price is down X amount, uh, but if I'm getting the same income stream, I'm able to actually continue to, to stay invested. And, and of course, as financial professionals, one of the biggest challenges we have is, is to keep clients uh, invested in, in good times where it's easy and in bad where it's less, less easy. So there's a psychological benefit. There's an actual kind of volatility reduction. And in certain income producing sectors, again, credit being a key one, um, the, if you're working in the context of, of really making sure that folks, um, folks can, can get that tangible result, uh, then you can, you can help them ride out you know, a, a previously um, challenge, a, a now challenged expectation that they may have previously had, which is just because something yields six percent doesn't mean your return every every year is going to be six percent. So, it's it's a good theory. It's reasonable. Um, in my experience, practically in the market, uh, there are actual um, kind of return advantages to receiving income. It's a steady income stream, and certainly some some clear psychological advantages, which we we tend to poo poo in in good times, but uh, hang on to in bad ones. So, so final question, you know, and this comes back to the whole liquidity conversation that we've been having as well. That's, that's broadly out there. And that is, and that is your feelings about cash, you know, and, and a lot of funds have sort of seen cash to be sort of this constant drag uh, on the portfolio, but I was curious to hear your thoughts on, on, on how you see cash in terms of managing liquidity and also being the ability to take advantage of opportunities as well. So the funny thing about cash is uh, it's got the greatest optionality of anything in your portfolio. Um, I think it's, it's value uh, as an option in your portfolio is often um, discounted or, or sort of not appreciated, but I can turn cash into anything, but I can't turn anything into cash. So in the context of, of the element of liquidity, uh, there has been a lot of uh, regulatory focus, uh, a lot of uh, different sort of structural um, changes in marketplace that have led folks to think about liquidity um, less carefully maybe than they should. So what we've seen in the last little while is that you can have the greatest portfolio ideas in the world, but if you don't have the cash to execute them, then you're, you're hamstrung. And I think we saw in several points at several points in the last several weeks uh, where that actually started to shut the financial system down. So look, I think that again, banks themselves are in a very good position relative to 12 years ago. But one of the reasons why they're in a very good position is a lot of the risk they had taken on uh, from a portfolio perspective or balance sheet perspective has been put onto global markets. And a lot of the participants in global markets uh, do not have locked up capital and certainly don't have uh, kind of uh, government backstopping that obviously the banks did. So when you see huge changes um, in value, uh, what you're seeing is an increasing importance of managing liquidity. And if you're able to manage liquidity, first of all, 
uh, as an investment manager, um, you need to think of that as one of the key benefits you can provide to clients. Uh, there are a number of structures out there uh, that put the liquidity uh, challenge uh, and liquidity management uh, responsibility directly on the client. The investment manager is not taking that. Um, but if, if you take on that responsibility, which at Thornburg we have, and you can manage it well, it is a source of excellent, excellent returns. Um, and in fact, what we've been able to do in providing liquidity to the marketplace uh, over the last several weeks is really buy, buy long-term assets at a notable discount uh, because that liquidity, uh, there, there was such a premium on ca having cash. And because we'd had some, uh, we were able to, to put some of that into the marketplace and really get, really get some, some great positions uh, put on the portfolio. You know, it's funny, uh, especially in uh, less so in equities, but in a lot of other asset class, certainly to include debt. Um, there are days when um, you know, the, the index or some, some benchmark may price at a certain level, but the reality is if no one's buying, then you know, th there is no price. If no one's selling, there is no price. And what we've seen in some of the whipsaw moves in the last uh, few weeks is if you can be the buyer, uh, when everyone has to sell, you get to name your price. And this, the opposite is also true. So being able to manage that very um, forthrightly, very, um, very, very consciously is a source of significant potential value in volatile times. Well, that's a great place to leave it there, Jason. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate your time as well. Thanks so much.